0: Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dig into this passage together. Father, as worshipers, we, we open your word before us here this morning, asking you to work again as you have so many times in the past to cause us to see you more clearly to see ourselves more accurately. To see what you call us to. How you call us to live. What you command of us. Lord, and we come to your word needing to be sanctified just a little more today again. So use your word to, to transform us from one degree of glory to another as... We hear your voice and behold your Son speaking to us here. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just wanted to say thank you, first of all, to Ryan, Ryan Hendricks, and the worship team this morning. They stepped in. As you notice, uh, Pastor Kyle's not here today, and uh, that's because his wife, uh, Heather, was uh, tested positive this week for COVID, and so they're locked up, you know, like they like we're supposed to be, and uh, so they're quarantining at home. That's why Kyle's not here today. Uh, so thanks, Ryan, for stepping in and leading us in worship, uh, and be praying for the Petersons as they recover at home. Sounds like they're doing okay uh, so far, but the they haven't hit quite the peak yet of of uh, this virus. So pray for them as they deal with it and. Uh, We'll look forward to having Kyle back here uh, in the not-so-distant future. Well, we just we just sung a few minutes ago what's called a song of lament, a song of lament. Um, Lord, from sorrows deep I call is the name of the song. And, uh, and the words, in the, that first verse go, Lord, from sorrows deep I call, when my hope is shaken... Torn and ruined from the fall, hear my desperation. Uh, you don't you don't see too many new songs of lament being written these days. In fact, especially not in mainstream Christian music, and especially not for congregational singing. Um, but lament is a, a fully appropriate activity for the church to engage in, because not all of life is happy, right? Um, life in many ways is, is excruciatingly difficult and deflating, and at times just straight-up disheartening. We live in a sin-corrupted, divinely cursed world that's awaiting redemption, and in that world, life can be incredibly hard, and it's quite all right, and even good, and even appropriate and important to acknowledge that and to take our pain and our fears and our disappointments and even our complaints to God, because where else are we going to go with those complaints? Where else are we going to go with that sorrow and that sadness? He's the only one who can do anything about so many of the things that lead us to lament. Um, now, this week, as I have been digging into the verses that, that Steve just read for us a minute ago... Digging into these verses has made me wonder something, specifically in regard to the first seven verses, 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 1 through 7. It's made me wonder if we, could, if we could somehow quantify it, how many songs of lament have been sung over the years, and prayers of lament prayed, and tears of lament shed, over the disregard and the violation of these verses, this passage, specifically 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7, where where Paul continues to teach the Ephesian church how to be and how to build a faithful church. In chapter 1, he focused on the importance of building a faithful church by guarding sound doctrine. In chapter 2, he starts you know, helping them understand that to build a faithful church, you gotta, you got to take seriously your conduct in corporate worship. And now here he's teaching us how to build a faithful church by focusing on the qualifications of the leaders of the church, local church leaders. That's the subject here in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. Verses 1 through 7 are focused on the qualifications of pastors in the church. Verses 8-13 through 13 are focused on the qualifications of deacons. But I've wondered how many songs of lament have been sung over the years over the havoc and the disorder and the division and the abuses that have been, all been carried out by pastors who do not meet the qualifications that God has laid down for them in this text. And by churches that do not insist that their pastors meet these qualifications. It shouldn't surprise us that in a letter written to help the church learn to be faithful to God in every way, that Paul now turns to the issue of the qualifications and the requirements for church leaders, beginning with those given regarding the pastors of the church. Because as the pastors of the church go, the leaders of the church go, so goes the rest of the church. So that's his focus here in 1 Timothy 3. He's laying out in verses 1 to 13 the foundational requirements and qualifications for church leaders, requirements for pastors who he calls overseers. We'll get into that in just a minute. And then requirements for deacons. And uh, we're going to focus our time this week on the requirements that he lays down for pastors in verses 1 to 7, and then turn next week to the requirements for deacons in verses 8 through 13, Lord willing. So with that, just want to meditate together this morning upon this passage of Scripture by asking and answering four questions from it and with it. Four questions from the text and with the text. The first two questions are going to fill most of our time, and then we'll do what we can with the final two, depending on what kind of time we have left at the end. So question number one, who is this list of requirements for? Don't don't just want to assume that we're all on the same page about that. I want to make it clear. Who is this list of requirements for? The list in verses 1 through 7 specifically, who's it for? Paul says that these requirements pertain to the overseers of the church. Do you see that in verses 1 and 2 here? The saying is trustworthy, Paul says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. The, the words there in verses 1 and 2 are the words uh, episcope and in verse 1 and episkopos in verse 2. Both of them are nouns, they, so they refer to the offices here, not just actions, not just activities. They re- refer to offices in the church. And they refer specifically in this context to appointed leaders who give watchful care and attention and intervention to the local church. These are leaders in the church who kind of watch over the church, they're overseers, overwatchers. So these are the appointed watchmen over local churches. Now, in other places in the New Testament, there's different words used to describe these same leaders in the church. There's the word presbyteros, which in the English is translated elders. Uh, you see that in a number of places. Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy later in this book in chapter 5, uh, Acts chapter 20, which we'll turn to in just a minute, which when referring to church leaders refers to spiritually mature men who provide spiritual direction and wisdom to the local church. Those are the elders of the church. Then there's another word used in Ephesians 4, uh, in fact, in verse 11, in its noun form, and then in 1 Peter 5, in its verb form, which is the word pastors or shepherds. Uh, these, are, these are men who care for God's flock. They give them spiritual protection, spiritual nourishment, spiritual care. And what's so interesting about the way these words are used in the New Testament to describe the leaders in the church, leaders in the local church, is that there's all kinds of overlap between these words. There's all kinds of overlap and interchangeability in these words. So they're not meant to be taken as these hard, fast distinctions or categories for the appointed leaders of the church as if you have your elders in one group and then your pastors in another group and then your overseers in another group. No, the way these words are used in the New Testament, they all refer to the same people. So in the New Testament, a pastor is an elder, is an overseer. And you can see that in a number of different places in the New Testament. I'll give you one example, Acts chapter 20. You can flip there real fast or you don't have to. We'll just refer to a few things there. In Acts chapter 20, in Paul's final, you could call it his, his final shepherding class with the Ephesian elders on the shores, shores of Miletus getting ready to take off for Jerusalem. There in Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, he calls for the elders of the Ephesian church to come see him so that he can share a few last words with them. Then in verse 18, you see the elders of the church show up but then in verse 28, if you skip down to verse 28, Paul says to them this. Listen to what he says to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for, which is actually the verb form of the word shepherd. Care for them as overseers, shepherd them as overseers. The church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there in that passage, you see this interchange of all three concepts, all three words. Elders are the overseers are the pastors of the church. There's uh, 1 Peter 5 is another another example of this, where you see this interchange of words being used. For the sake of time, I'll just encourage you to check that out on your own uh, your own time sometime if you're interested. 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 3, you see the same interchange of words. So then, while you could say that elder refers to a leader's spiritual maturity and overseer refers to his ultimate responsibility and pastor refers to his basic identity and activity in the church, even so, an elder is an overseer, is a pastor in the church, at least when it comes to the New Testament. In some churches, these words may not be used so synonymously. You might have your pastors and then your elders, something like that. But I, we think you'd have a hard time justifying much real distinction between those terms on the basis of the New Testament. So I want to make that clear. Who is this list of requirements for? It's for the pastors of a local church. So that's question one. Question two is, what requirements are included in the list? This is where we need to walk through the list to see what exactly is called for here. What are the requirements for local church pastors? Well, as you work through this list, you'll see two basic categories of requirements. Two basic categories. The first is required moral qualities. Then the second is required ministry skills. So you've got required moral qualities on the one hand and required ministry skills on the other. And it's important to notice that the bulk of the focus here is upon a man's moral qualities, his character. There are far more required moral qualities than there are ministry skills here listed. So what are the required moral qualities? Well, if we group a few of these together, I think we can come away with at least six very distinct qualifications or requirements for local church pastors. Number one, the first requirement is that he must love and lead his family faithfully. He must love and lead his family faithfully. Verse 2 says that a pastor must be the husband of, of one wife, the husband of one wife. And you might know that that's more literally translated one woman man or a man of one woman. Uh, and many have taken that to refer to different things. Uh, some, of, some people take this to refer uh, to address the issue of, of polygamy, like the elder can't be a polygamist, he can't have more than one wife. Some have taken this to refer to a man's uh, uh, past in his marriage, like he can't be divorced, for instance, is another popular uh, take on this. The word itself doesn't demand a specific focus like this, though I do think it would certainly rule out a polygamist from serving as a pastor. I think that is probably true, but only by implication, not by direct meaning here. The issue here in this qualification is one of faithfulness to his wife. Faithfulness to his wife, like has the man demonstrated Christ-like love and faithfulness to the woman God has given him as his wife? Is he obviously committed to her, and is he exclusively committed to her? That's the issue. If he's married, there needs to be evidence that he is a faithful husband who loves his wife he loves his wife and is genuinely committed to her exclusively above and beyond all other women in the world. If you have legitimate questions about whether a man is genuinely, obviously, exclusively committed to his wife, he does not meet this qualification. If a man has given evidence... And that's the key here. He's given evidence of not being committed to his wife, obviously and exclusively. He should not be a pastor. He should not be an elder in the church. He should not be an overseer because the simple fact is if he's not faithful to his wife, he's not going to be faithful to the church either. So he's got to be a one woman man. The other thing Paul says here in regard to a, a pastor or potential pastor's family life, family relationships is in verse 4. If you skip down to verse 4, it says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And the word manage here has a kind of governmental ring to it. It, it views the father as the, the leader of the home. And specifically, Paul wants for the church to take note of how the man leads and directs his children He's got to keep his children submissive. So the question is, do his kids, do the man's kids look to him as a leader over them? Do they submit to his leadership? Do they submit to his direction? Do they submit to his instruction in the home in general? But more than that, there's the question of are they submitting to him for the right reasons? So not because he's some heavy-handed jerk, you know, who doesn't allow for dissension in his home, but because he leads with, as Paul says, he leads with dignity. It means he leads respectably. He re- it leads with honor. So his children submit to him because they know he's a man who is a man of dignity, who's a respectable man. They know he's a man who loves them. They know that he's a man worth looking up to. They know that he's a man who's invested the time and effort into watching over them uh, that's required to earn their trust. He's done the work. Obviously, it doesn't mean that his kids are perfect. Hope we all know that. Or that he never has to deal with dissension in the home or disobedience. Or that they somehow are much better kids than everyone else's kids. Those are unrealistic expectations of pastor's children it just means that he has clearly done the work to lead and direct them well now why should we care about that why why is that a qualification why is that even in the list here well paul says it's because in a way how he leads his home how he manages his home will show how he will lead and care for the church. So Paul says in verse 5 for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Meaning the, the way that he leads in the home is a picture of how he'll lead in the church. And if he hasn't done well leading at home, he's not going to do well leading in the church. It's just that simple. But, but just a quick note to point out the kind of management that we're talking about here because the word itself just kind of feels cold and heartless and dry and mechanical, right? It's not meant to be that way. Notice how Paul equates it with the idea here of caring for the church. He says if he can't manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So, we're not talking about a, the kind of management that just sits around a boardroom table and makes unilateral decisions just because he can, you know, as if he's just this hard charging type A decision maker that throws people under the bus of his own ambitions and his own plans. That's not the kind of management we're talking about here. We're talking about a kind of management of the home and of the church that involves personal care and relational intentionality and sincere concern for people and loving attention to their needs. It's interesting that Luke actually uses this word care for in uh, uh, Luke 10, uh, 34 and 35 in the parable of the Good Samaritan where he uses the same language, talking about the Samaritan who, who goes to this guy who's been beat up and you know dragged out and uh, 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 left for dead and all of that. He goes to him, binds up his wounds, Luke says, pouring on oil and wine, and then he sets him on his own animal and brings him to an inn, and it says, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying... Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You get the idea. If he doesn't do that in the home, he's not going to do that in the church. A pastor must love and lead his family faithfully. So that's first. That's the first requirement here. Second requirement is a pastor must be under control. Under control. Paul says uh, three things here under this category. He says three things um, in, in verse 2. He says he must be sober-minded. First of all, that literally means sober, like not a drunkard. And he's going to bring that up in verse 3. He can't be an alcoholic. He can't be addicted to substances. But it could also mean figuratively here. Sober-minded could mean figuratively that he's restrained. He's restrained, like he thinks clearly, he thinks reasonably, he thinks carefully. He also says there that he must be self-controlled, sober-minded and self-controlled. Self-controlled is like sensible, modest, not extravagant, you know, not, not reactionary. He's self-controlled. And then he says, he uses another word there that, that translates uh, respectable, respectable. And the word there is actually like orderly. He's not disorderly. He's not reckless in the way that he lives his life. He's got to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, which are all more general qualities uh, required of pastors. And the idea here is that pastors need to be men who are careful, who are deliberate, who are intentional in the way that they live and the way that they lead. They can't be men who just jump around from one thing to another thing, from one interest to another interest, from one idea to another idea. They need to be men who are stable and steady. They shouldn't be easily enamored with new ideas, novel ideas, and get easily worked up about all the ever-changing events in the world. He needs to be calm. He needs to be controlled. He needs to be measured. The picture here is that of uh, of a person who has some serious personal, moral, convictional stability. He knows who he is. He knows who God is. He focuses on what's most important in life. He's stable. He's steady. Why does a pastor need to be under control? Because there are all kinds of things in life and ministry that will seek to rock him off center. All kinds of things. You can think of suffering. Suffering. Relational conflict, conflict in the church, heresy and false doctrine, fatigue, family struggles, criticism, pandemics, all kinds of things that will seek to rock him off center. And if he's not proven himself as a steady, self-controlled kind of person, he's not going to handle those things well, and the church will end up being rocked off center as a result. He's got to be a man who's under control. That's second. Third, a pastor must be gracious in his dealings with others. He must be gracious in his dealings with others. Paul says first uh, in verse 2, he says he must be hospitable. He must be hospitable, which means uh, he, he shares himself. He shares his life. He shares his resources with others. Uh, literally, the word means he welcomes strangers into his life, which kind of gives the idea that he's accessible. It's not hard to reach him, to get to him. He uses his resources to bless others and not just his favorite people in the world. I think that's the idea behind hospitality. He, this isn't just a guy who treats the people in his close inner circle well. This is a man who who shares his life with all kinds of people, even those who are strangers to him, whether people he doesn't know or people he finds hard to love. Now, why is that? Why does he need to be hospitable? It's because he doesn't get to pick. He doesn't get to hand pick ultimately, which Christians become a part of the church. God picks those people for him. And this is God's church, not his own. So he's got to welcome whoever God brings into the church. He's got to be hospitable. You also see the graciousness required in the qualifications listed in verse 3 uh, that says he must be not violent but gentle. Not violent here literally means like he must not be a bully, not a bully, not, not a contentious person. Not the kind of person who starts fights. Not the kind of person who throws his weight around to get his way. Not the kind of person who inflames conflicts. But one who is gentle, who uses his authority in a way that benefits other people. Not violent, but gentle. And then Paul says he must also not be quarrelsome. The word really just means peaceable meaning he, he seeks reconciled relationships with others. He's forgiving. He's patient. He helps others forgive those who sin against them. He isn't ever satisfied with conflict. He doesn't thrive on conflict. He's peaceable. He's peaceable. He wants peace with people. So what's the idea? A pastor needs to be a gracious person needs to be a gracious person, one who reflects the kind of graciousness that the Lord has shown to him. Why is that? Because there's going to be all kinds of opportunities in ministry and in the church to be ungracious to people. And because one of the main ways the church glorifies God in this world is by seeking to show the grace to one another that God in Christ has shown to us. How could a man ever teach the church how to do that? if he's not doing that himself. So he must be a gracious person. Fourth, a pastor must have godly motivations for serving in ministry. He needs to have godly motivations for serving in ministry. Paul says at the end of verse 3, he must not be a lover of money. must not be a lover of money. A way to put this positively would be to say that a pastor needs to be a man who is content. He's content with what the Lord has given to him. Paul's actually going to spend a little time on the topic of contentment later on in this letter in chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, in fact. And the idea here is that a, a pastor needs to be a man whose aim in life is godliness, not riches. He needs to be a man who isn't using the church to get more for himself. Now, I imagine it's not hard for anyone here to figure out why that might be, right? Why would he need to be not greedy? Uh, so we're not going to belabor the point here other than to say that this qualification is seriously important. Does the man have godly motivations for entering and serving in pastoral ministry? What ultimately does he want? Why does he want in? Why does he stay in? If it's to promote himself, it's, if it's to build his platform, to get famous, to stuff his pockets, he needs to get out immediately and repent. And there are all kinds of pastors who seem to be using the church in this way. And they probably just shouldn't be there at all. The Church of Christ is no platform upon which to build a kingdom unto yourself. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to deal with Jesus one day, the real Lord of the church. A pastor must have godly motivations for serving in ministry. And then fifth, the pastor must be a seasoned Christian. A seasoned Christian. That's the idea in verse 6 where Paul says he must not be a recent convert. He must not be a recent convert. Notice how he doesn't really focus on the man's age at all, his physical age. He focuses here on his spiritual maturity, which is the important thing. Recent convert actually is, the, is a Greek word that means newly planted. He must not be a newly planted Christian, a sapling of a Christian Christian. He needs to be spiritually mature, not just spiritually zealous and not just willing to serve. I think we could say that he needs to be a man who has a good deal of immature zeal beaten out of him by life and even by ministry to some degree. He needs to, needs to have a developed love for people and a good deal of compassion and a healthy measure of patience and perspective that new converts tend to lack. And it's really important here. This is a really important qualification. I mean, they all are, but here's another one. You know, the the issue is, uh, so what if a man is energetic and passionate and a good speaker and a willing worker and a creative innovator and all those kind of things if he's not a man who possesses depth of character and maturity of perspective? What happens when eager, zealous, immature men get into ministry? Paul says here that they're very likely to become puffed up. Puffed up is is his words. Puffed up with conceit. Which is, gives this picture of filling up with pride and self-infatuation. They get full of themselves, he says. They get full of themselves. And the effect of that is, as some of you might well know, and have experienced for yourself. People get hurt. And churches get divided. And the focus of ministry becomes that guy and not Christ. But worse, in some cases, Paul says, these kind of guys end up suffering God's eternal judgment. The devil leads him so far astray that he actually falls away from the faith entirely and ends up in hell. Do you see what he says there? Must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If you put a guy in ministry who's not ready for it in a in the sense of his spiritual maturity, who's spiritually immature, who's, who's a new convert, newly planted Christian, he may very well as over time he gets very puffed up and, and infatuated with himself, he may very well prove himself to be a self-deceived, self-righteous unbeliever and fall headlong into condemnation. Meaning it's not good for his soul to be put in that position, let alone the soul of the church. And that should tell you something. That should tell you at least that being a pastor doesn't make anyone right with God. The position saves no one. And for some, it could prove deadly, fatal. You don't want a man as a pastor in your church, as one of the pastors of your church, who needs a position in the church to feel validated before God. You want pastors who know that their acceptance with the Father has been achieved and received in and through Christ alone and then who minister to others out of the overflow of that assurance and confidence. So a pastor needs to be a seasoned Christian. Then number six, a pastor must be known as a sincere Christian among non-Christians. That's verse seven. Paul says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The general idea here is that in, in general, the non-Christians in this man's life need to know and need to believe that he is a sincere Christian, that he's not a fake, that he's not a charlatan. That he's a sincere Christian. They may not like him. They may not agree with him. They may not like what he says or what he believes. But they need to know at least that he's a sincere follower of Christ. In general. Why is that? Because part of our job is to reach those very people. So if they think he's a fake. They'll think everything we say. Everything the church says about Christ is fraudulent as well. We could look at all kinds of examples in history, even present tense examples in the world and in our country that demonstrate that. So, those are the required moral qualities of a pastor. Okay, and I, I just encourage you to meditate on them, think about them further on your own. Those are the moral qualities that are required for pastors of local churches. Now, how about the required ministry skills? Required ministry skills. Now, if you noticed. There was actually only one such skill included in this list of requirements, and it's tucked away near the, near the middle of the list. And it's that a pastor must be skillful in teaching sound doctrine. He must be skillful in teaching sound doctrine, or as Paul says at the end of verse 2, he must be able to teach. Able to teach. Skillful in teaching and specifically, we're talking about teaching of sound doctrine in the church, the sound doctrine of Scripture, which focuses intently on the person of Christ and God's plan of salvation in and through Him. I appreciate how one pastor explains this qualification. I think he does so well. He says, able to teach means a person is able to, to faithfully explain and apply the Bible so that listeners grow in their knowledge of Scripture and sound doctrine in a way, and this is key, that produces love for God and neighbor. And so a pastor needs to be a diligent student of Scripture. He needs to be one who works hard at understanding the Bible and at interpreting it rightly and at grasping its implications upon his life and upon the life of the church. He needs to be a man who truly believes and embraces the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency and the power of the gospel. Titus 1.9 says that he must be a man who holds fast to the faithful word, holds fast to the faithful word, holds tight to the faithful word. He needs to be a person who thinks theologically, he needs to be a person who thinks systematically when it comes to Scripture, seeking to grow in his grasp of who God is and of all the intricacies of the gospel. He needs to be a man who thinks about the world and about life and about history and about himself and about the church through biblical lenses, not pragmatic. Lenses. He needs to be one who's committed to sharing that understanding with others so that they might grow up spiritually and honor God more consistently in their day-to-day lives. He needs to be one who embraces the importance of doctrine in the church. The elders need to be the guys who sound the trumpet of the importance of sound doctrine in the church and who don't downplay doctrine. They need to be men who emphasize it in a loving way, of course, but men who emphasize it in the church. And he needs to be a person who's committed to teaching sound doctrine in the church. He's got to be skillful in teaching it, not just a smart guy who knows a lot of theological words, but a guy who's skillful in passing on what's most important from the scripture so that people grow up in the faith. It doesn't mean that he can just fill in in a pinch. You know, like he can fill in in an emergency. He's able to teach. Like, I mean, is, is he able to do that this Sunday? we got to fill the spot. Is he able to do that? I mean, he's able to do that. That's not the idea here, able to teach. It means that he's skillful in teaching, skillful in passing on sound doctrine. And he can certainly be geared for one type of teaching over others, like preaching over teaching classes or teaching classes over counseling or counseling over preaching or any of the above there, one-on-one teaching over public teaching, he can be geared for one type of word-centered ministry over another, but he's got to demonstrate a proficiency in promoting sound doctrine in the church. Why? Because that's one of his most important jobs. In the church. It's one of the main things that pastors have been given to the church to do. Why has God given pastors to the church? Not primarily to make organizational decisions and set policies and lay down rules and give orders, but primarily to pass on the truth of the gospel to other people. Paul says in Ephesians 4, it's to equip the church to do the work of ministry. And if we think even wider picture here, it's it's to do these things in order to keep the church alive for generations to come so that disciples of Christ might be developed with skill until Jesus returns. He's got to be skillful in teaching because he's not going to be around forever. There's got to be other people to take up, take the torch from him after he's gone. So a pastor needs to be skillful in teaching sound doctrine. These are the requirements of every pastor in every local church in every age. And what Paul says at the beginning of this list is very important. When he says that an overseer must be above reproach, if you notice that at the beginning of this list, what he's saying is that in the list that follows, in these things that are listed, every pastor needs to clearly meet the qualification. He needs to be above reproach in regard to the qualifications that follow, meeting the qualifications beyond any legitimate accusation. If there's a credible charge, credible charge... That demonstrates that he does not meet any one of these qualifications, he must not serve as a pastor in the church. It's as simple as that. He's got to be above reproach in all of these things. So that's what the that's what's included in the list. Okay? That's question two. And there's your answer. Question number three Why are these requirements needed? Why are they necessary? And I'm going to run through five quick reasons here, though there are certainly all kinds of others. OK, there's we could talk about this all day, but I'll give you five reasons why these requirements are needed. Number one, number one is actually in the text. And it's because the work of a pastor, as God intends it to be, is a what Paul says, a good work, a noble task. If you notice that uh, in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And The language is literally, it is a good work. Which is a fairly well-known Pauline phrase, right? It's a, it's a phrase that Paul uses a lot. Meaning that this is a work that honors God. And demonstrates gratitude for the gospel and shows love for other people. The specific work being the work of watching over the church with love and care and instructing the church in sound doctrine and calling people to live holy lives and guarding against error and seeking to help people along to spiritual maturity. The work of pastoral ministry is a good work, Paul says. And it's an important work. Is it a daunting work? Yes, it is. But it's a good work. And it's an important work. And it's too important not to have men of godly character and doctrinal skill doing it. So that's one reason it's needed. Secondly, these requirements are needed because the work of a pastor requires character. It requires character and theological depth. It requires it. It's not possible to be a good pastor without being a good man, without having a, a firm grasp on the teachings of Scripture. What does he do? What does a pastor do? I mean, he's got to handle the Word of God. He's got to use it to help people. He's got to care for people in distress. He's got to you know, help make sure that the church is using its funds in a good way, a wise way, a gospel-focused way. He's got to help set the direction for a church. He's got to counsel people. He's got to deal with divisive people. He's got to respond to adversity and to criticism. He's got to live visibly in front of the church. He's got to love the saints faithfully and over years and years and years, ideally. All of that requires integrity. All of that requires a deep morality. All of it requires serious theological conviction. That's also why it's required. The work itself requires the things listed. Then third, the requirements are needed because unqualified pastors do great harm to the church and to its mission. So much harm. And I, I read or I hear about this kind of harm probably literally, I can't quantify it, but probably literally on a weekly basis. The harm that's done to churches, ultimately by men who don't meet these qualifications. They do much harm to people. So much needless pain and destruction and division and mission drift is caused by unqualified and disqualified pastors. So that's third. Then fourth, the requirements are needed because internal decay and internal corruption are serious threats to the church and to its ministry. Internal decay, internal corruption. The greatest threats to the health of any church are internal, not external. Things like hypocrisy, legalism, false doctrine, divisive people, gossip, cowardice, hidden sin, sexual sin, backbiting conflicts, unloving disagreements, and on and on and on the list goes. Internal decay is the ultimate reason that churches die. It's the ult- ultimate reason that churches lose influence in the world. It's not outside influences that do that primarily. That's why Paul's so focused in this letter on the importance of personal holiness and integrity in the lives of each person in the church starting here with the leaders it's also why in this list of qualifications for elders that paul's so focused on character qualities and not leadership experience or the person's skill set other than his teaching of the word and then another reason these requirements are needed is because if left to establish the qualifications ourselves if we were just left to make up our own lists our lists of qualifications would be unrealistically long and subjective. How many pastoral search teams have demonstrated that over the years? What do we want in a pastor? Well, he's got to be a certain age. He's got to be married with kids. Not too many kids, but enough kids to show. That he, and he's got to have a degree, and he's got to be funny, and he's got to be likable, and he's got to be energetic. All kinds of things that the text doesn't even say. God doesn't even say. Or as these authors put it, and they're putting it humorously so that you know, in describing the ideal pastor, they say, The ideal pastor preaches exactly 20 minutes with an hour's content. He condemns sin but never offends anyone. He works from 8 a.m. to midnight and also serves as the church janitor. He's 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. He's a strong leader yet also follows everyone's advice. He can effectively relate to all teenagers and spends all of his time with the elderly. He's tall and short, thin and heavyset, and has one brown eye and one blue eye. He makes 15 house calls a day, regularly visits the hospital, and is always in his office. How Paul's words, how his instruction helps us sort out what's most important from what the masses might prefer and then from those things, that just don't matter at all. Very helpful. Then question number four, and we'll close. What should we do with these requirements? Here I'm thinking just what can the rest of the church do with this list? If you're sitting there thinking, I'm not a pastor. I have no desire to be a pastor. Um, what can you do with it? What can the whole church do with this list? And I know we need to move quick here. I'll offer you a, a handful of things maybe six things to consider by way of application. Number one, would you please pray for your pastors? I'll say one of the, one of the greatest gifts to, to me and Kyle and whoever else might, might serve in this role in the near or distant future is your prayers. Pray that the Lord will preserve us in our walk with him. Pray that he will guard us from temptation Pray that he will press us to always prioritize the pursuit of godly character over anything and everything else in life. Pray for your pastors. Number two, don't ever lower the bar for pastors in this church beyond what God commands here. Don't relax these standards for anyone, regardless of how slick, and how charismatic, and how savvy. He might be, don't lower the bar, ever. Be gracious, but don't lower the bar. Third, seek to live this kind of life yourself. Whether you have any aspirations or ability to be a pastor or not, all of these things, it's very interesting, all of these qualities, all of these character qualities, moral qualities, with maybe the exception of skill in teaching, that's not required of everyone, but everything else is required in some place in Scripture, of every Christian. It's not as if the pastors only should be like this and everyone else gets to do whatever they want. We all should be like this. And the pastors should, should be those who can set an example in these things. Strive to live this kind of life yourself. Then number four, if you do aspire to the office of overseer, the office of pastor, pursue these qualifications with intensity. Pursue them with intensity. If you have any plans, any aspirations, any thoughts, any dreams, any hopes of serving in this role, this is the kind of person you're to be. So pursue this with intensity. Then number five, if you ever see your pastors clearly falling short of these requirements, approach us about it in love. Love us enough to confront us when you see us falling from these standards. There's nothing more important than the purity of the church. If we compromise on anything here, let it not be the purity of the church. That's five. The number six, pray that the Lord will give us these kinds of pastors for generations to come until Jesus returns. As long as we got to wait, as long as we're here, pray that the Lord will give us these kinds of men. Let's pray. Father, we look to you now with the, the help of your spirit to show us what we need to do with your word, to help us apply it in ways that honor Christ and that show love for one another and that promote the gospel. Thank you for teaching us what's required of our leaders. Oh, Lord, teach us to take these things seriously until your son returns. For we do ask and pray in his name.